Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, music interviews for serious listeners. You may have heard of our curated music discovery app. The podcast lets us dig deeper and get to know the creators of that music, as well as others that will broaden your horizons. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. guest today is one of our original craft brewed music artists, embodying our culture from his music to his beer consumption. <laughs> BBC Radio has called Tracy Silverman the greatest living exponent of the electric violin. He's the former first violinist of the Turtle Island String Quartet and has fronted a number of groups from his own rock bands to some of the world's finest orchestras. And all the while, he's furthered the evolution of his own instrument, the six-string electric violin. Thanks so much for being here, Tracy. It's my pleasure. Welcome, Tracy. Thanks. Glad to be here. And I uh, have to say I'm an avid listener, not just a guest, but a uh, a consumer of the of this podcast, which is so great because you guys do such an amazing deep dive with these cool people who a lot of whom I've never heard of before and uh, just always impressed by how how well you've researched your guests. So we're going to see how much you guys actually know well, about me. We're gonna yeah, out. I was just going to say that's an unfortunate <laughs> observation because we're going to go a, go a different way this time. We're going to wing it. <laughs> I, I haven't heard a single thing you've done. <laughs> I've never, never heard of you before, but I, I hear you're a nice guy. So. <laughs> um, so, you know, with all the, the different things you do, which, you know, you've got stuff out there that could be termed hip hop, could be termed jazz, Certainly yeah. could be termed classical rock, all this different stuff, um, which that, you know, that trait is not uncommon, you know, for our craft brewed music artists and yeah. our guests on the podcast. Um, so is there, can you identify a thread that runs through all that, you know, that, that makes all that make sense? <laughs> not really. <laughs> it <laughs> bewilders me, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I guess... Uh, if there is a common thread to to what I've been trying to do for the last 30 or 40 years, <clears throat> it's probably that I'm trying to uh, basically update the, the violin. I'm trying to play the violin in a more contemporary way, which... Um, which is in keeping with the rest of our contemporary musical culture, the culture, the musical culture that's around us, all the pop music that we hear, um, you know, everything from hip hop to rock to even jazz, which is certainly part, still part of our musical culture. Um, but to play, play the violin, it, you know, um, uh, in a way that's, that recognizes all of that as if it had always been a part of the violin repertoire. Uh, which it hasn't, you know, the violin repertoire has been very kind of secluded in this, um, 
Western canon of, of European art music, um, which, you know, for the last 300 years or so, of which there is an incredible body of masterpieces. So it's, it's very hard to dismiss uh, all of this incredible content, sure. <laughs> you know, of uh, uh, masterpieces written by Bach and Mozart, Beethoven, you know, um, some of the greatest works uh, of mankind. But nevertheless, it's historical music. It's just as paintings should, you know, should not be thrown away. They should be in museums, you know, so that we preserve these Picassos and Rembrandts and things like that for other people to see them. Um, you know, the, I, I think classical music and string playing and, and all of the Bach and all of these are the masterpieces, the masterworks. They should be preserved forever. However, um, they were written in their day representing their current culture, uh, their the place and time style that they were uh, that they came from and i think string playing should continue to do that and should continue to be representing our current tastes and styles uh and so that's kind of what i've always been trying to do you know even quite literally by updating the actual violin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, it seemed to me like when I was coming out of Juilliard, uh, this is in 1980, uh, it seemed pretty obvious to me that somebody needed to do with the violin what they had done to the guitar, which is actually uh, turn it into a, a truly different electronic version, electric version of its acoustic self. So just as, you know, a nylon string classical guitar or even a steel string um, acoustic guitar it is has its own merits, its own beauty, its own, you know, its job that it does in the musical world. Um, an electric guitar does other things, similar, but slightly different. And so... Um, that's kind of what I would I set about uh, to to do in uh, 1980 when I got out of Juilliard. I started making these electric six string violins that had six strings like a guitar, and I I just wanted to do like I said to the violin what had been done to the guitar to modernize it to um, make it an electric instrument that could then be processed in a contemporary way with things like distortion and things that would make it sound more like guitars. And the whole reason for all of that, uh, for, for the, for, well, you know, for the idea, it wasn't just that I was like, Oh, you know, I have an idea for an invention that nobody's thought of. I'm going to invent an electric violin. Uh, the reason I was doing it was because I wanted to play music. My friends would like, uh, I wanted to, you know, I love the Sibelius Violin Concert. I love the Tchaikovsky, the Mendelssohn. I was raised on this classical music, but that's pretty unusual uh, in the United States, especially. Sure, um, yeah. A little less so in, in Europe, maybe, but um, for the rest, of, and the rest of the world, pretty unusual. And 
all my friends were listening to, you know, to rock and roll. They were listening to Led Zepp and Hendrix and whatever, uh, Almond Brothers. And, um, and I wanted to play music that they would think was cool. And even, you know, uh, even though there's certainly uh, the Sibelius Violin Concerto is an incredibly cool piece, I think uh, it's not exactly what they were used to. And it was not it's not in the voice. The, you know, the electric guitar is for my generation. Now I'm, you know, an old dude. So I came up in, you know, the rock and roll era of the 70s and the 80s and stuff like that. And, you know, like one of my, you know, bands was a grunge band, rock band and stuff. Um, it was all about, you know, all about guitars and everybody had a guitar hero. And, uh, you know, that was the voice of our generation, kind of, you know, just sort of like the way the saxophone maybe was the voice of the 40s and the 50s popular music, you know, which jazz was really fresh and new then, you know, and rock and roll in the 60s and the 70s. It's about the guitar. Uh, and that was, you know, what everybody heard. And that's what I, I just wanted to play music they would get. So when you talk about wanting to play music they would like, was it also the music that you liked? Like when I was in, in music school, there was a disconnect. You know, I studied the music I should study. And I, and I was, but, I, but I have to admit that it was a, a little forced. I, when I was listening for pleasure, it was, you know, the music of my time. Um, yeah. Was that the same for you? Was this also your first taste or was it really about more about what others were were looking for? Well, I, you know, I was lucky enough to be raised with a lot of, uh, a lot of different kind of music in the house. Um, there was great exposure. My dad was a big classical music fan, had a great LP collection and a hi-fi set. <laughs> uh, right. And, um, and my mom was into uh, musicals and, and uh, musical theater. So we had a lot of those records. My brother was a huge rocker. So, you know, we would sit around and, um, you know, like in his room at night after my parents went to bed, like we found a, a beer somewhere that we bought off a friend or somebody found. And we would listen to Neil Young and Chicago and Led Zepp and Hendrix. Uh, when I was 16, my brother got me three records that had a huge influence on my life because we'd been listening to a lot of rock together. And then I went off to college and he was like, you need to take some of this with you to your classical music school. <laughs> and he gave me a Hendrix record, a, a Zappa record and a Jean-Luc Ponty record. You know, let this be the beginning of your musical future. And it was incredibly uh, prescient because it really was. Um, that was it, it. It was very influential. And uh, to answer your question, I did uh, uh, love that music. Um, I loved the Beatles. I was raised uh, with a lot of Beatles. And also, I should say, my dad was a big jazz fan. So there was a lot of jazz in the house. Uh, and I had very eclectic taste. You know, to me, it was all great. Like I, I, I would hear, you know, a, a classical, um, 
you know, uh, let's say the Prokofiev Violin Concerto that I was just in love with, would listen to it every night, and yet would just rock out to Neil Young with my brother, and we'd just be like, real Neil, and, you know, that Cinnamon Girl, and, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, it was um, uh, a lot of different musical influences, and I didn't really see any big difference, like, like uh, borders between them, because we all listened to all of that stuff in my mm-hmm. house, in our house. So... Um, you know, I was a big fan, fan of that music and, and, uh, you know, understood it well enough to know exactly why all my friends liked it, you know, mm-hmm. the power of it, the, the primal, um, primalness of rock and roll. And, you know, I heard that stuff. I, I could relate that to the Prokofiev fifth symphony and, and stuff like that. Like, you know, it's just like beats that were heavier than lead and, you know, like, wow, I could, I could understand from the classical symphonic canon, you could tell what Beethoven was going for, you know, like if, if he had stacked of marshals, he would have used them. He would have like, <laughs> I want this to be bigger than anything. You know, I mean, he was thinking in monumental terms as were so many classical uh, composers, especially the symphonic composers. And I think that's why that, you know, that music makes such an impact in film scoring to this day. You know, you hear that same big symphonic sound, it's massive and it's, and that's a big part of what rock and roll is. And um, the other thing about rock and roll, if I can say that, that really appealed to me then and still does is the real lack of pretension, the lack of pretentiousness that, um, you know, somehow finds its way into classical music. And it's a shame um, because it's it's sort of this whole other societal thing that's sort of an overlay on classical music because the real classical music has nothing to do with, you know, with pretentiousness. It has to do with, you know, soul and emotion and all of that. It comes from a much more organic place, but, but over the years, you know, there's been this overlay uh, of uh, pretense on a lot of classical music and, and in rock and roll, it just cuts through all the bullshit, you know, and it tells stuff the way it is. And, you know, there's something just incredibly refreshing about that. Um, you know, for somebody who is increasingly getting frustrated with the, you know, the preciousness of, of, in the classical world. Did you see the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the creation of this new instrument, uh, at that time is a means just to, to emulate aspects of the guitar and make it accessible to people, uh, with the listening background of your generation, or did you even see it at that time as something that's going to propel the classical violin into, uh, into something new back, back in your twenties when you were developing this instrument? Yeah, I think a little of both. Um, you know, it was always kind of this dual. Well, back in there, in the early days, I just wanted to be a rock star. You know, um, I kind of knew that it was important for the, for hist- historically for the violin to progress. I wanted to be a part of that, um, but you know, mostly the part that I wanted to be was the rock star part. <laughs> you know. Uh, I wanted some, <laughs> I wanted people to recognize that the instrument could do everything a guitar could do. You know, it could, it could be incredibly heavy and fast and, you know, shredding and, 
and all of that kind of stuff, rhythmic. Um, you know, I wanted people to really appreciate uh, how how much fun the instrument could be, how incredibly effective it could be uh, in in the rock world, and I wanted it to be ex- you know to to find its way uh, into onto rock stages, you know. And I was hoping that I, I would be the the guy to be sort of this first um, you know rock star of the violin, but. On the other hand, I was really aware that that as a in the more uh, contemporary music world, in the serious art music world of compositions and composers, that this was a new instrument that had incredible uh, expressive qualities. Um, and although at that time I wasn't so much interested in developing that, I was, you know, I had rock bands that I was trying to get signed and I was playing gigs and, you know, I was really focused on that. And it really took, um, years later for, uh, a conductor friend of mine to commission me to write a, a violin concerto, uh, that I wrote my first one. And then John Adams wrote, of course, Dharma at Big Sur, which really helped to put the instrument on the map for for serious composers, but it's still in its infancy, and it's one of the missions of my life is to to get um, you know serious composers to write for the instrument and and to develop new repertoire so that it will find its way in, into the concert hall stages as well as as a, uh, a serious instrument and not as a a gimmicky kind of rock and roll kind of thing, which um, you know I, I may have you know, started out um, looking at it as. I've heard you say that, you know, string playing needs to evolve or die, I think. Am I quoting yes. you correctly? Yes. And so, perish. Um, yeah, perish. Um, <laughs> if, if, uh, if classical music, by extension, needs to evolve or die, what are the elements that, um, that it needs to embrace to be of our time? Yeah, that's, that's the big question. I think there are a lot of things in the classical world that that uh, need to evolve a little bit. Uh, first of all, where and how it's performed, I think, has a big is a big barrier, cultural barrier, uh, to begin with. Um, I think the I think the real solution. Uh, is not in programming, you know, a lot of pops concerts or, or you know, um, orchestras playing film scores to the mo- to movies uh, because audiences will come and watch the movies. Um, I think the real solution is for composers, contemporary 
composers to synthesize the popular music that is around us, essentially hip hop based uh, pop culture um, and, you know, rock to whatever to and jazz to the degree that those things are part of our pop music culture. Um, and and so, somehow find a way and, and many are already doing this to to create to turn that um, that idiom into art music. Uh, the way Gershwin turned jazz into Porgy and Bess, let's say, although that, you know, I mean, I know there's all kinds of disputes about the racial aspects of that piece, but setting all of that aside, just from musical aspects, uh, what he was doing in that piece and in, in Rhapsody in Blue, uh, other things was taking jazz from the 20s and 30s uh, and putting it on a concert stage and developing it in a, in a long form, basically. Let's call it long form pop music. Mm. Um, that's kind of, um, you know, what has to happen so that people who are into pop music, but are maybe, you know, a little bit in, into interesting versions of it, which there are a lot of people, rather than just exploring that within the realm of extended takes on uh, of their favorite bands on YouTube or, or whatever. And it just sort of moves into the orchestral world where, okay, now here's a cool new piece that's similar to like the same, like the same guy who did produce the Drake album is wrote this piece or, you know, or film score composers, guys like Danny Elfman writing stuff for orchestras that are going to just intuitively, um, connect with people because they intuitively know that he came from a rock band and he knows how to make that connection. Those are the guys. I think those are the, the that's the future of for classical music. Maybe it's closest to film score guys. Cause that's really where it sort of intersects with gaming and pop music. And, you know, there's that a great mix that's going on in the, in the gaming world actually. And so, so you've got, you've mentioned some cultural elements and you've also developed some technical elements. I mean, you've got you developed an entire technique around how to play your instrument in a way that that moves it into that area. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. How 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 to get orchestral instruments to to play this music is a big challenge. Um, guys like um, Hans Zimmer, uh, again a film score guy, has been doing some very interesting stuff in particular with strings, where he gets strings to really kind of play rhythmically, to play less classically with a less classical tone to get scratchies, um, kind of, you know, what we call extended technique uh, sounds out of their instruments. Um, now, you know, this is not terribly new. This has been going on for 20 years or so in the film score world, um, you know, using extended techniques and getting all kinds of more synthy types of sounds, more rhythmic kind of sounds. But um, one of the things that he's doing, uh, Hans Zimmer, for instance, uh, with his strings, is getting them to play rhythmically, uh, getting like cello sections to kind of groove, to chug, almost like a, like a guitar player would, you know, and accenting and doing this kind of rhythmic string playing. Uh, and it's a, that's a world that's very close to my heart. Um, I've been developing this method called the strum bowing method, which is designed to teach classical string players how to groove. 
and, and, a, uh, and, a, and, a, and a school, a video school, the Strom Boeing Groove yep. Academy. The thing about grooving on strings, which it seems like, how can you teach this? This is unteachable, you know? Uh, and, and this was kind of, uh, to me, it's one of the greatest compliments when people say that, you know, that I found a way to teach the un- unteachable. Rhythm is, um, it, it's not so unteachable. You know, it's like having good pitch. It's not so unteachable. You teach people how to fix their pitch and correct their intonation and they get better intonation. You teach people what to focus on with their rhythm and they can get it. It's not that hard. But here's the thing. It's very it's the it's a very simple, uh, uh, different approach than what classical string players learn. Classical string players, you learn basically what we call as it comes bowing. When you want a sound to come out of your instrument, you move your bow. It's pretty intuitive. Um, But this is actually not the way guitar players keep rhythm. When they keep rhythm with like a strumming motion in their hand, their hand is doing something continually while they may be only just popping out a few notes. So a lot of that may be ghosted or muted and not really heard. And this is a very simple rhythmic timekeeping technique that guitar players have been using for you know many many years uh that string players don't don't know how to do because the bow is a very different tool and it's not so easy like a pick to just stop hitting the strings and then hit them you know with a you know it's very easy to do that when you're holding a pick not so easy when a bow is resting on the strings right because you have to lift it up put it down so Turns out, though, that there are easy ways to ghost, and you can teach string players how to do that within a few minutes. And as soon as you do, it opens up this huge doorway uh, to string players to like, you know, it's like this just a light bulb that goes off like, oh, okay, so then I can just keep time and and not, you don't have to hear like every note that I'm playing. So you don't hear like da 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 You can hear like dun 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 that changes everything. If you don't have that groove, it's never going to sound like rock music or like jazz or like hip hop. It's going to sound like an imposter. You know, it's going to sound like somebody who's trying a wannabe because you don't have the groove. The groove is the, is the, it's that sort of ineffable thing that we can tell whether something is authentic or not. Hmm. If it, if it's got that feel to it, you know, it's real. And, and if it doesn't, if it's stilted, you know that they're like, not feeling it. And the reason for that, I've given this, you know, a lot of thought. And, and I think the reason is because it's physical. It's simply your, if your body is feeling it, it comes across. And if you're not, if you're isolated from your body and you're trying to recreate a rhythm in your head with your hands, you know, which is the way string players approach rhythm. They look at it on a page. They read it with their eyes. The information goes into their brain. It's turned into sort of directives for how to move their fingers and their hands. And then they try to move their hands all in the in split second. And of course, it's a little late and it's awkward and it's never quite staying, you know, getting this physical feeling of just dancing and moving your body physically, um, which is just so much, a so much simpler place to come from. Um, you know, I like to joke around, you know, it's not brain surgery, you know, if guitar players can do it, <laughs> I'm saying, anybody can do it. I get a lot of pushback from guitar players about that, but <laughs> Aaron's an interesting mix of guitarist and neurologist. <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost both things. <laughs> like, a, like an idiot savant. <laughs> uh, 
This is my favorite moment of the podcast. So yeah, far. this is good. I, I, was, I, was hoping, I was hoping we get to this moment where we we'd somehow get to invoke that quote about guitar. If guitar players can do it, how, how hard could it be? As well as the perfect descriptor for Aaron, an idiot. <laughs> right. Right. Thank you. But, Thank you. you know, Thank you but that. the truth is, it isn't, it isn't hard. It's just different for string players. So, so this has been sort of my mission to show people that, hey, this isn't so hard. Uh, and if you just, you know, move your body and, and approach it in a non-classical way, in a fun way, in the way that you approach any kind of popular music by initially the visceral response is to move to it. I mean, how can you, how can you listen to some hip hop beats without moving? I mean, it's like impossible. Uh, and if you just let that simple impulse of, of movement affect your playing in a natural way, the way most musicians in the world do, uh, that that's, that's how you sound authentic. Um, and for classical players, that's a very opposite process. We're going to take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor, the Craft Brood Music app, a curated music discovery app that streams music for serious listeners. Sometimes we hear that people want to hear more of the songs we play on the podcast. To hear more Craft Brood music, download the Craft Brood Music app from the App Store or Google Play and get a free two-week trial. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations, and we split our income with the artists. Craft Brood Music, the music discovery app for serious listeners. To hear samples and find out more about us, visit craftbroodmusic.com. When I was uh, in my early 20s, uh, I was dabbling in the classical guitar, and I went to a, uh, a camp in Connecticut. It was like a week-long camp to like, you know, play with the masters. Uh, and at the end of the week, they had this uh, recital, and they had a bunch of small groups that were being coached. And like the little kids group, not little kids, I don't know, like 10 to 12 years of yeah. age, everyone's kind of like, you know, we're going to, you know, humor, humor them and listen to them do their thing. Uh, and like, there's this one, so there's four kids on stage and three of them clearly wanted to be there. Like had like, you know, nice shirts and long pants on. The other one had like a t-shirt and shorts on. Clearly his parents had forced him to go to this camp, <laughs> but they were doing a four guitar version of the, uh, Cooper and harpsichord piece, the mysterious barricades. Uh-huh. And I don't know what they told this kid to do as coach, but like he was, <laughs> audibly <laughs> tapping his sneakered foot on every other kid. He was basically playing the bass on his, on his thumb. And he was just, I, I can only describe it as like he had a perfect pocket for this song. Huh. Uh, and it was, it was by far the best thing of the entire recital. And he was moving his body, moving his head to the whole yeah. thing and just playing this harpsichord bass line. And mm. like it grooved. And I was like, wow, that kid gets it. How, how are we going to screw this up and undo this kid? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and like teach him to like use like you know the the foot riser and perfect posture and not move his body <laughs> right. at all. Right. Um, yeah, it's so true. It's how do you approach so that problem as a as an educator? Well, you know, I usually don't have the kids in that early stage. You know, so they're already really screwed up when they get to you. Oh yeah, they're completely there. You know, my my whole job with this is, is basically you know recovery. I'm trying to you know it's like <laughs> rehab for for classical string players, <laughs> like a rescue violin. Person. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> the violin I've, whisper. I'm, I've, I've been just... in classical recovery for three years now. <laughs> exactly. You know, because it doesn't take long. To, to beat the fun out of music for a kid. It doesn't take more than a few lessons if you got the wrong teacher. Yeah. Um, you know, a kid will go like, you know, oh, this is so much fun. I love playing guitar. You know, I love this, you know, because whatever, however he got there. And then you got a teacher who's like, okay, now we're going to learn how to read these notes. And now uh, this, this rhythm is like, you know, and if it just becomes like stuff on pages, um, it's completely different from what, 
the, the kid is interested in, you know, now doesn't mean, you know, I'm not this anti, you know, education or anti-classical advocate or something. Learning how to read music is really important. It has not hurt my, my career, you know, or, or my appreciation for music and ability to, to learn music and read it and stuff like that, discover music. But we got to be so careful that you don't, it somehow it has to be brought in just like so many other things in education. <sighs> Don't get me started about education, well, you know. Well, uh, you've got to be cognizant of, of the importance of bringing it off the page, you know, that it, that it lives off the page. Yes. It, you have to start with what the kid loves about music, first of all, uh, and go with that. That's my whole thing, you know, and even at the college level, which is where what I teach mostly you know, I'm always working with like, what do you like? What's the music you like to listen to? Let's write something new in that style or let's work on something. Um, you know, I have the privilege of doing that because I'm not teaching them classical violin. That's not my my job to do. But um, it, it it's certainly possible to to nurture a student's love of music with, you know, uh, to help them technically without stomping it out have your them. car like have you ever had your car tires slashed or <laughs> your car keyed by the classical faculty <laughs> not yet <laughs> so, so what i listened to um uh the uh, the fifth movement of uh between the kiss and the chaos the, the picasso Guernica yeah. movement i think that's a, a a amazing exemplar of using these uh techniques that are kind of emulating the electric guitar and the the percussive chunking and the, the shred and the kind of more sinister sounds coming out of the uh, um, out of the violin for that that piece that are so evocative of the uh, the visual piece. really dig it. And I, I, I see myself, I imagine I project myself into that audience and say, wow, uh, as an adventurous listener, who's not a, you know, a big aficionado of classical music, I didn't grow up with that same, uh, background. I'm like, I'm on board. Like you've got me, you've come, you've come half my way, uh, with, uh, you know, an attitude, a swagger, percussive elements. They're all very familiar and attractive to me and made me willfully engage with challenging contemporary music. My question is how do you how do you get the listener to go the other halfway and listen to the challenging music of yesteryear that maybe doesn't necessarily have all those elements? Yeah, um you mean to go back and discover um, Mozart and Beethoven and, yeah. and Brahms. Well, you know, that's a that's a tricky one. Um that's it's really tough because it's it is so old. It is so dated. And, you know, for most people, like, like a lot of things in history, if you don't have the context, if you don't really understand 
the social societal context around things in history, uh, it's hard to really appreciate them. They just look old, you know, Um, but you have to, you know, so it's, it's really hard to, to make Mozart not sound dated to a kid who's used to listening to hip hop, for instance, you know, and it's not really, it's not my job to do that, frankly. I mean, it would be wonderful if, if, if I, you know, anything I did inspired somebody to to look back and find Mozart, and that would be a wonderful thing. But it's almost like I'm focused on something kind of different in a way, um, rather than trying to get young people to appreciate this historical music, because there's a lot of people who are doing that already, and and you know, who are like um, teaching artists and people who are really. Uh, focused on doing that and and bringing making Mozart um, relevant, you know, in some way, so that kids will will really understand it, and and that's important work. But that's kind of not what I'm doing. I'm almost doing something not opposite, but but different. Rather than getting them to sort of appreciate classical music, which is almost thinking of it like eating their vegetables, which is not what they want to do. But you know, here it's really good if you melt cheese on it. Um, <laughs> what I'm, what I want to do, ranch, ranch is, dressing is also exactly, exactly. Helpful. But what I want to do is say, look, I know you want a hamburger. That's what you really love. You don't really love broccoli. So <laughs> what I want to do is I want to show you how you can have hamburgers with stringed instruments. <laughs> you know, essentially, <laughs> you can, you know, you can use these classical instruments. And do something really cool with them, like play the music you like on it. Figure out how to do that. You know, mess with it. Um, and I can show you how to how to do that. How to get those sounds. It doesn't have to be Mozart, and so it, which is different. It's it's a very different job from getting them to appreciate classical music. What I'm doing is trying to get them to not. Um, dispose of stringed instruments because they are only old fashioned because they can only play Mozart. I want them to think of them with look at strings with fresh eyes and hear, hear them with fresh ears and go, how would you, what would you do with this four string or hopefully one day uh, six string instrument? If I, to somebody who's never heard the Tchaikovsky violin concerto, has no idea what that sounds like. Uh, is not particularly familiar with classical music, but maybe picks up a violin or a cello and figures out how to just be funky on it or do something really grooving or whatever, screaming, whatever, whatever, wherever they take it, but do something totally original in their musical context, in, in the context of our contemporary popular music, hip hop or whatever that is. Um, so that's a little bit of a different uh, kind of focus in terms of uh, where, what I'm hoping kids will do that's sort of classical music related. Hopefully that this will in some way bring them in a roundabout way back to Mozart because anybody who's really interested in creating music should be also intuitively cr- interested in the people who have created music in the past, um, even if they're old dead white guys. Um, you know, to say like, you know, maybe there's something worthwhile back there I should go listen to. Um, so, you know, th- that I think is maybe the the most authentic way that we can really bring that appreciation to to a really young generation. And so 
there's the audience of young people and there's another audience that you interface with, intersect with, which is the existing orchestral audience. Yeah. And full disclosure, uh, I'm, you know, I represent you for booking in that realm. Yes. And so I talked to a lot of, of orchestra administrators about you trying to, you know, pitch our, our products, pitch our, <laughs> pitch our wares. Yes. Um, and, and, and some of them who are very forward thinking say, you know, yes, Tracy's the guy, this is the right vehicle to bring our audience forward a little bit. And right. as often, if not more often, I hear, I love Tracy. I love John Adams. I love Terry Riley, the pieces he plays, but our audience is not ready and they're not going to go there. Yeah. So I guess the flip side of of Aaron's question is how do you uh, move them that way? Clearly, your personality and your kind of inclusive uh, approach and enthusiasm for this is one way. Uh, and I've noticed musically, um, in, in the music that you do, it seems like programmatic elements, themes, are something that emerge yeah. a lot. And I'm wondering if that's part of the hook, if you will, you know, the John Adams Dharma at Big Sur is, yeah. is about a thing. Your love song to the sun is about a certain story. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. I think uh, the pro programmatic aspect of that, um, although it's, you know, it's fairly minimal in, in Dharma, you know, um, but I think there, I think that's very helpful. Uh, I think it's really important to, to assure, uh, contemporary um, classical audiences that it's not going to hurt, you know, um, that's not going to be painful to listen to an electric violin concerto, because, <laughs> you know, there's a, that's what, that's what I try to tell them that, that you know, eight out of 10 people are going to survive this experience. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like the Hippocratic okay. first thing is do no harm. <laughs> you know? We promise this is not going to hurt. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think it's, it's, I find it really helpful to do these uh, pre-concert chats with the audience. Um, I find that it's, in, it's really incredible what, uh, how easy it is to, to build a rapport with them and just to go, hey, look at this instrument. Um, and let me just give you a clue about, you know, this cool idea that John Adams had when he wrote this about what he was going for in this mixture of Asian music mix, you know, fusing with rock and roll and jazz and whatever. Um, and, and people are, you know, if you give them something like that, and this is the teaching artist part of it, you know, uh, give them an entry point. Um, I think people are very willing to come along because people love a story. Um, they want to know how something ends. Uh, and frankly, when I wrote, I wrote uh, my last concerto, the um, Love Song to the Sun, one of the big decisions that I made going in was that I wanted it to have a story. I wanted there to be a story because I was thinking, I'm writing an elect a brand new electric violin concerto. So right away, a lot of people do not want to listen to that. You know, a lot of people will, but a lot of people like, uh, uh, no. So, so the first thing I want to say is like, okay, I want to introduce you to a character and then there's going to be a story and you're going to want to know how the story ends. Does the character die? Does he live happily ever after? What happens? And as soon as you set up that sort of premise, I think it brings people in and engages them. Uh, it welcomes them. 
And, and it also gives them something kind of narrative that they can follow, even if they're making up and inventing three quarters of that story in their own head. Um, they know there's a sort of a, this is the, you know, in that one, it's the, the life cycle of a gnat, of a bug. Um, so, you know, you might think that's a really stupid idea for a piece. But it's an idea and you can follow that says life cycle. Okay. Starts here. He ends up there. Um, having, having a story, I think, uh, is, is helpful. Uh, and in terms of engaging, you know, engaging that audience, I think this is a, this is really the, the job, uh, of the, of orchestras, you know, this is the job of the, uh, um, musical directors and artistic programmers and orchestras to develop trust. I've seen it happen over the course of about 10 years in Nashville, where the Nashville Symphony would consistently, every single concert programmed a piece of new music. And almost every ch uh, piece that they programmed was engaging. Um, it was not off-putting, modernistic kind of uh, academic contemporary music. It was mm -hmm. contemporary music that was quite accessible. It was not like pops music, but stuff that worked, you know, and they would put one of those on, on every program. And sure enough, people would start to really look forward to those pieces, to what is this new little thing going to be in this concert? And they don't like some of them, some of them they do like, but it's like a, it's like a tasting menu or something, you know, it's sort of, uh, and it sort of like our app. Exactly like your app. <laughs> exactly like your app. You're fostering um, this adventurous sense of, um, uh, you know, discovery. Yeah. You know, what will I discover? And there has to be a sense of trust. Like your listeners on this, uh, for this podcast and, and for the app, have to develop a sense of trust. Like, you know what? I heard three tunes and I liked all three of them. So I'm going to listen to another one. Um, you know, if... If you don't end up liking them, you don't subscribe. But, um, you know, the idea is that the curator, you know, you guys as the curators of the app have to develop trust with your audience. And that's exactly what orchestras have to do as curators of their programming so that the audience isn't afraid of classical music, of contemporary music. Mm -hmm. Because there is a lot of very wonderful, accessible, uh, visceral, very the, uh, music you don't have to study to understand. I think there's this conception with a lot of contemporary music that, well, I don't, I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how it works. I, I, it's yeah. twelve tone. It's atonal. I don't understand atonal music. Um, good music you should never have to understand. That's a mm -hmm. level of appreciation that can happen at the same time if you understand it, but. You should be good music should always work viscerally. You don't have to understand whatever, you know, uh, yeah. whatever it is that appeals to you. It appeals to you because on another level, it appeals to you emotionally. Uh, and then if it also appeals to you intellectually uh, and on various other chakras on the way up from the bottom to the top. Great. A good, I think that to me is the definition of great art is that it, it actually works on many different levels at the same time, like a Shakespeare play could be, you know, like clowning on the slapstick. And it's also puns and it's also a, a dramatic arc. And, you know, there's and it's character There's all of these different things happening. But you can under, you can appreciate it on the lowest level or at the highest level 
um, and understand the the references that he's making in the language and the wordplay. And, you know, all of those things can happen simultaneously, you know, and do usually in great art. You had mentioned uh, your, your latest concerto, Love Song to the Sun. The, um, the performance uh, that, uh, that I saw excerpts from featured a projector screen yeah. uh, behind the, uh, the orchestra, which I thought was a super cool idea, kind of showing kind of, uh, you know, Im- nat, nat point of view images of yes. <laughs> merging in the water and whatnot. Uh, you had to convince an orchestra to take on a contemporary piece that's an electric violin driven piece. Yeah. Uh, the, the addition of a multimedia Mm-hmm. Um, spectacle is that is that make the cell even more difficult in in this day and age when they're trying to balance the expectations of the traditional audience and then try to do something new and, uh, and unconventional as well. Well, Brian would be able to answer <laughs> that better than me. <laughs> but well, uh, it's it's I think you know it's always a tough sell. Um, but that one's uh, kind of a hybrid because we're yeah. we're taking this thing that orchestras love to do nowadays with the screen, you know, the projections right. and the movies that Tracy mentioned, and kind of slipping it in with, with a new piece. Uh, and Dharma now has projections as well. Right. Um, so uh, uh, I think with that one, it tied into the story. It was that footage was created by Todd Winkler. This is all. Tracy and Todd's ideas. Yeah. And, and so that it all tied together and helped tell the story that Tracy. Exactly. Made. You know, so, so the concept definitely was partly, um, you know, that this, this will play well with an audience. It will help it to be engaging. Uh, and that was part of my whole approach of, you know, I want this to be a story that people are going to get into and want to see how it ends. Uh, and, and one way to help tell that story is to have a visual element um, because it's easier to tell more that way than just musically. Uh, I didn't want to have a, you know, a narration could have been like Peter and the Wolf could have been like a narration that there was definitely an option. Um, But I thought the visual thing would be, would be really interesting and, and more abstract. Um, And there was uh, another element. um, If I can jump in. Yeah. Uh, that that you mentioned earlier too, Tracy. And that was performing in non traditional spaces. That was the Vanderbilt University Orchestra. I, th- I think the the YouTube footage you saw, Aaron, and yep. it was performed in this big open, I believe, concrete floor space at Oz yeah. Arts in Nashville. Yep. The the screen and the orchestra were right in the middle. The screen was visible from both sides, and people were invited to to grab a cushion and sit on the floor, grab a chair, sit on behind the orchestra, beside the orchestra, any angle. So really from every, at every level of this piece, Tracy and Todd were trying to create um, a different uh, experience that that would be engaging in all these different ways. Exactly. And trying to break this classical performance model uh, that I alluded to before, you know, the, the formality and the pretentiousness of a concert hall and all of that stuff. And, and just to, to make a fun musical, uh, you know, deep kind of storytelling experience. Um, that was what we were kind of going for. And one of the cool elements, you know, that, that we were also doing was doing live interactive video so that it wasn't just sort of this video um, creation that sort of goes along with, with the music, but um, it was actually videoing what I was doing and Todd was manipulating with all this sort of psychedelic, crazy um, video colors and, and, you know, um, 
whatever pro programs that he was using, yeah. uh, doing kind of matching musically, working musically in harmony with what, with what I'm playing so that my image was changing in real time. And my, my vision for this was that I didn't want to, it, it always seemed to me like when I see pictures of myself or videos of myself performing, you know, and I'm standing there playing the violin in front of an orchestra and I'm like, that's not a, at all what I have in my head when I'm playing, <laughs> you know, mm. that's not at all what this looks like <laughs> to me, yeah. you know? Mm. And so I wanted people to kind of get a, 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 a glimpse of sort of what, if I could transform myself into the musical sounds that I'm hearing and sure enough, Todd could do that, you know, in this max uh, software and, um, and it was triggered by what I was playing so that when I would play, you would see this abstract version of myself. And then when I was quiet, it would a black screen and then boosh, you'd see this crazy abstract violin player and then it would go off and, and it was perfectly matched to the distortion sound that I was going for. And it was sort of a, uh, I, you know, I just felt like a, a really creative way to bring people closer to what I'm feeling musically rather than just like looking at some guy wearing a jacket playing a violin. You know what I mean? Yeah. I wish I had a way to make people see me in everyday life, how I imagine myself. <laughs> That'd be really cool. But... Like with the superhero, the superhero. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And everything. <laughs> Much cooler. Yeah, no, but that's a, that's an interesting I hadn't thought about that project in a while. And um, although Aaron and I talked about it earlier, we didn't go into to that depth. And that's there's a lot of great examples in that project of the things that we're talking about. Yeah, a lot of the music was very rock influenced. In fact, quite a few of the tunes in that piece were melodies from my rock band in the 90s, pre-Turtle Island. I had a band called Gut Bucket uh, yes. in Minneapolis. And uh, a few of those riffs from that were riffs that I used to play back in my band that I was like, these are just really solid musical riffs. And I was like, wow, this, this works here. This helps tell the story. Um, so there was a lot, of, a lot of rock and roll, a lot of percussion, um, you know, trying to bridge that gap. And I, I was teaching, you know, have the string players playing this sort of rhythmic strumboing kind of stuff where they're playing more like guitar players as a, as a string section. Um, so there was, you know, trying to bring all of that into a piece and hoping to, you know, to be an example of what I think is, as you know, one way for contemporary composers to engage a contemporary audience, meaning a young audience, people who are, who like to watch cool movies, you know, who are into interesting music, um, but interesting music that's relevant, you know, not interesting historical music. Well, it's cool that you've kind of figured out how to articulate uh, those things and how to give people tools to do them. We'll put in our in the description, you know, links to the Strumbo and Groove Academy and your your books and all that. Oh, cool! Um, but that's um, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to share your approach and your thoughts with us. Yeah, it's my it's my pleasure. It's nothing I prefer to talk about than uh, myself. Thank you for listening. Craft Brewed Music, both the podcast and the music discovery app, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask you two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Second, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brewed Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the curated streaming service. 
For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again and see you next time.